hey, everybody, I, look, I'm not going to ask you how you are. I know how you are. You're sheltering in place. You're frustrated. You're sick of being home. You feel emotionally and physically claustrophobic because you are stuck. Uh, you're observing the rules of social distancing by sheltering in place by yourself at home with your family or without a family, depending on your situation. And uh, it's a little much. Unless, of course, you're in Georgia. <laughs> if you're in Georgia right now, you're probably getting a haircut, a tattoo, and a sexy massage. Now, I'm no scientist or a medical expert, but I don't think that's a good idea. Any of those things are, are liable to get you into some kind of trouble. Ugh, what are we going to do? Look, Georgia, I wish you well, uh, but I think you uh, have taken a funky path. How about that? All right, so there's that. Uh, now, I don't know if you guys know this about me, um, but I enjoy being in front of the microphone. I enjoy interviewing people. It's the one thing in the world that I think I'm good at. I'm terrible at everything else. If you want to keep it simple, just know this. I'm good at interviewing. I'm bad at literally every other thing you can do on this planet. But put me in front of a microphone, give me someone to talk to, and I can make it work. It's what I do. It's where I'm absolutely the most comfortable. It's my sweet spot. It's my pocket. It's where I thrive. Sometimes if I'm on a date, I will uh, realize that I don't like the interplay where you know I'm getting asked questions too. I think it makes me uncomfortable. Subconsciously, it's not conscious. And then all of a sudden, uh, I will uh, put the woman in question on my podcast. I just start interviewing her. And uh, that alienates everybody. This is why I'm still single. Because people, when they go on a date with me, they're basically on the podcast. And they don't like it. It's one-sided. It's a little bit weird. And I learn a lot. Uh, but really, it's a one-shot deal. There's never a second date. All right, so why am I telling you this? Well, there's a reason. I was contacted a couple of weeks ago by a guy from London. He's a performance poet, lovely guy, and it turns out he's a big fan of my work. And he said, I'd love to have you on the show. I'll read a few poems from your book, Emergency Anthems, and then you and I can talk about poetry and your process. How does that sound? And I said, great. You know, no problem at all. All right, so we're doing this Instagram Live thing. Have you guys done one of these things before? I never had, but I figured I could, I could sort it out, you know? And uh, so we get it all set up. We're going to do it at a certain time on a certain day, and I get myself uh, ready to go, put on a nice shirt, and, uh, you know, because it's going to be a live video thing, and I want to look presentable. And I sit down in my office on the couch, and, uh, you know, I've got my my Kelly Haig painting behind me of, uh, of a sea monster and a young maiden, one of my favorite things that I own. Beautiful backdrop, and uh, I'm ready to go. So he's reading my poetry. He's reading the poems better than I wrote them. The guy's amazing. He's just a dynamo of a reader. Incredible. And then he says, now let's talk to the poet Alex Green. And as soon as he says that, boom, there I am on the screen only it's not my face. Nope, it's a close-up of my cat's litter box. And I'm looking at my cat's litter box and not my face, and I'm thinking, what the hell has happened? And the guy goes, oh, Alex, you have to turn your camera around. We can't see your face. And so I did, 
and it was fine, but what a start. They're expecting to see your face, and instead, they see your cat's bathroom. Now, the interview went reasonably well. I was fairly coherent. I was able to recover from that rough start. But as he was asking me the questions, and I was delivering my answers, I had to fight the urge to not turn the tables and ask him questions. All right, so there you go. There's the long and short of it. Uh, There's no big lesson here. There's no revelation. I I mean, I suppose the revelation is that I realized uh, for sure uh, that I like to ask the questions and not be asked the questions. Um, I'm sure that you probably don't find that to be a big surprise. You're listening to a program where I interview people. (laughs) I mean, if I got on here and I was like, why doesn't anybody ask me questions about me? Uh, I suppose uh, I shouldn't be hosting a podcast. Wouldn't you agree? All right, so the show you're about to hear, guess what? It's me asking questions and getting answers. Me back in my sweet spot. And you know what? I wouldn't have it any other way. All right, I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. It's just the same day over and over. I mean, seasons will change. Planet, which features my guest today on the program, Alex Greenwald. Let me tell you a little bit about Phantom Planet and Alex Greenwald. Now, Alex Greenwald and I have a lot in common. For example, his name is Alex, and my name is Alex. He's Alex Greenwald, and I'm Alex Green. We're both Jewish, we're both from California, and we're both vegans. He's handsome and sings for a band, and I'm... Well, I got nothing on that one. The similarities clearly end there, but you have to admit that we had a groove going. All right, let's start with that band that he sings for. Phantom Planet got going in 1994, and by 1997, they'd signed to Geffen, and a year later, their debut album, Phantom Planet is Missing, hit shelves. 2002 saw them releasing their Mitchell Froome-produced record, The Guest, which was quickly followed up by 2004's self-titled effort. Raise the Dead came out in 2008, and that was pretty much that for a while. Like, a really long while. Along the way, the band's signature song became California, which was the theme to the 2003 show The O.C., which, by the way, was the same year their signature timekeeper, Jason Schwartzman, left the band. 
They opened for everyone from Guns N' Roses to Guided by Voices. The band appeared on Sabrina the Teenage Witch. And their music has been heard in The Amazing Spider-Man, One Tree Hill, and Gossip Girl. Alex stayed pretty busy during his band's 12-year recording hiatus. He put out a solo record called Yo!, he played with Phases and The Young Veins, which featured former members of Panic at the Disco, and he produced tracks for the like. Okay, let's get to Phantom Planet's new album, Devastator. A thoughtful, catchy, and totally affecting effort, Devastator is full of crunchy hooks, sonorous melodies, and inventive instrumentation, all adding up to what I can only describe as a pop music clinic. It's a fabulous and refreshing record. Falling somewhere between Squeeze, Jellyfish, and Fountains of Wayne, Devastator finds Phantom Planet stepping back into the ring with some dizzying combinations. I love this album. And Alex Greenwald? Love this guy. So easy to talk to. Kind, generous, and super, super cool. So, enjoy my conversation with Phantom Planet's Alex Greenwald right here on Stereo Embers. The Podcast. band keeps giving me shit because our last record 12 years ago had a bunch of songs about either an impending pandemic or uh you know panic in the streets and uh they're just like can you stop being prophetic because this next record is called devastator and please don't destroy the human race do you think that thinking about disaster could ever be constructive or useful thinking of disaster if it doesn't overcome you is good because it's preparedness and i feel like it's a great thing to have people who are prepared for eventualities maybe is the word i was looking for uh but anxiety runs pretty high yeah yeah i mean haven't you always had anxious, a level of anxiety in your life dating back from when you were a little kid? Um, I've had like, I'd like to think when I was a kid, I I barely had any anxiety. I think that started coming out teenage years, I think, switching schools and hormones. Yeah, that's a lethal combo, Alex. <laughs> it sure is. Are you fatalistic by nature? I'm not. Um I think I have an interesting relationship to my ideas about death or world destruction, which are probably hard to share. Um, But no, I wouldn't say I'm fatalistic. I think I'd actually probably be more hopeful even with fatalism in mind. Well, that makes sense. Do you mean it's it's hard to share because it's so grim? No, it's hard to share to to, to put into words uh, personal philosophy that in my brain, the way it's wired works fine. But if you try to say it, it just comes out jumbled. It's a general it's a general presiding feeling. Yeah. I mean, I usually get into either fatalistic or hopeful philosophical musings when I write music. Uh, most of the time, I'm just like a dumb dude who hangs out and chills out on the computer (laughs) 
doesn't worry about anything and just enjoys his day. But then when it comes time to create, you shift into a darker gear. Well, lighter or darker, but I, I switch into a gear. Uh, you know, sometimes just based on maybe how my subconscious is dealing with stuff that sometimes comes out in ways that might be dark or they might be hopeful or they might be a beautiful, ugly mix of the two. Can you yeah, access yeah. that gear always or is, is that gear available to you or do you sometimes feel you can't you can't get in there? I think anytime anybody gets too much in their head about something, uh, they end up either spoiling it a little or as much as ruining it. Uh, but yeah, I guess for me, I have to get into the gear, which sometimes that just means being in the right headspace or sitting down at an instrument, uh, piano or guitar. And sometimes there's like a, we all have it, but the, 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 the little fear monger voice that's like, well, you're not going to write a good one this time or whatever sometimes can be overpowering, but as long as that doesn't get listened to or it does get listened to, but it's brushed aside or it's allowed to say its thing, but you you don't actually hear it. Uh, then it's usually pretty easy to slip into a gear, at least for me. Are you better now at ignoring that voice? That is a good question. I think I'm better now at acknowledging that it exists. Uh, a good question. I think in ways I'm a lot better and in ways I think I'm still fighting with it. I think maybe that's a healthy thing. I don't think you can be, you know, all happy or all self-content or content uh, as a human being. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, for me as a writer, I know that when I write something, I have that voice that goes, that's terrible and you're awful and you're a terrible person. And then I have another voice in my head that goes, well, that voice is wrong. Um, this is actually really good. And there's another voice that sometimes goes, well, no, that 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 voice actually has a good point. This is a terrible sentence. Um, <laughs> there's a kind of dueling, a dueling psyche going on, which makes it sound crazy. But I think it's probably a healthy exchange. I think as those parts of our brain that are wired to system of checks and balances or like to balance things out uh yeah it's easy to it's easy to i think find oneself veering too heavily towards one of them and none of them are right they're all just trying to protect us that's how it our brains evolved you know there's there's the fear one uh even though it fear of creative output doesn't make any sense but it exists for some reason anthropologically uh that helped us you know survive in the past but i do think allowing those voices to speak but not necessarily uh attaching yourself to them is a good philosophy that's right and then editorially it becomes more helpful yeah or it can sure it can yeah, yeah. it can um so is your is your creative process do you feel that you fine-tuned it um to a point now where you're you're more effective now than ever, or do you still have the same struggles creatively that you've always had? 
Well, the struggle is never with the creativity. It's with it's with me. And if I can sit down long enough to just open those channels. Um, but I don't, I think I've gotten better, like we just talked about, of he- hearing the voices happen, but not attaching myself to them. Right. But I think like the creative process is such an interesting uh, thing for each individual who, you know, like, it's probably completely different for me than it is for you. Uh, and for me, like each, each time I sit down with an instrument, I, I don't end up playing the same thing, which doesn't allow for me to establish patterns. And I think that's a good thing, at least for me as a songwriter, but not establishing patterns also is a very free form way of, of going about one's creativity. So I don't think it's like something that I've, hammered down and am exacting about uh it's literally just something if if i can sit down long enough and sort of let the dominoes fall uh by the end of it if i can sit down long enough i'll have something that i like yeah i get that i you know for me i found i'm a much better writer than i was 20 years ago but i'm way slower um Mm. when when i was younger i was writing you know 10 page poems you know like five a day. Um, and now, you know, I can sort of, I can craft something that I'm really, really proud of and I really love, but it takes me ages to get there. Yeah. I feel you for me lyrically, I think. So this goes into the writing thing, uh, that we share at least with language and words that does take me a lot longer, but I, I also want to put more attention and love into it. Because, you know, the music lasts potentially to infinity. And why couldn't the lyrics as well in the harmonious relationship? Um, And I'm trying to think there was a, I can't remember. It's it's probably not Thomas Jefferson, but there's some famous uh, end of a letter, which was like two or three pages. And the end of this letter uh, apologizes and says if i if i'd had more time this letter would have been shorter (laughs) and not to paraphrase too my memory is a piece of shit but there's some famous communique where that's the end and i've always thought about that and when you bring that up i think yeah if if i have more time i can i can whittle it down to its essence or uh, an impactful minimalism. Yeah. And I, I also think that youth has something to do with it too. Like when you are, you know, your hormones are in absolute full swing when you're at 18, 19 years old, um, when you're a dude. And I don't know if you're the best editor because you're just swinging wildly and, you know, the creativity is coming out, um, in crazy ways. And, and I don't think your, your editorial skills are as finely tuned as they will be when you're an older guy i agree with that also you know as one gets older you become more experienced and you find things through that those experiences that you like or that you dislike and all of those can be used towards the editing process uh however since we were talking about the enemies of creativity sometimes that editor wants to nix the whole thing Right. I think it's, I think that's 
cool in our conversation, I would call it the editor, wants to come out and say, you know, is this good enough? Because we could be doing countless other things that might be more important and, you know, and the creative flow. Yeah. And it's, and sometimes it's like you, you know, you have to sort of trust that voice, but that voice isn't always correct. Um, it becomes a really tricky kind of a, kind of a, a tightrope walk really when you're, when you're writing. Um, but when you reach that flow state, Alex, when you sort of like, when you hit the groove where there doesn't even need to be a voice, like you just are in the zone. Um, it feels like there that that's a place where no voice can even get in. Yeah. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's either they, it can't get in or they're cool. Like they don't want yeah. to say anything because you are, you've crossed all the streams. Uh, and you know, you're successfully destroying Zool. I'm making a Ghostbusters reference. If people haven't <laughs> seen that. Uh, but yeah, I think like flow state is one of those magical things that you can get yourself into with enough uh, mindfulness, maybe it's the right word. Uh, but I wouldn't say I have a monkish, you know, a monk-like uh, ability to uh, get myself into it. But when it, when it does happen, there's nothing like it. I mean, it's almost like time doesn't exist anymore. I don't exist anymore those voices certainly don't exist anymore and things are just happening, which is a magical thing. And I think most people who are creative to the extent that like you and I would be, uh, and you know, most people are, uh, they all have either gotten a fleeting glimpse of that or can get into it. And it is, you know, fucking magical. Right. That's the only way I can describe it. Well, like I, Last summer, I went to this Ethiopian restaurant in Berkeley, and I'm waiting for my food. And she's like, oh, we're really busy. It'll take about 20 minutes. And I said, oh, no problem. I'll just sit here at the bar. And I took a napkin, and I started writing. And I lost track of everything. And I wrote the best poem I've written maybe in my life. And then I was like, holy shit. And then in the future, when I sit down to write something with intentionality, I can't access that place. It's almost like I had... I had no choice. I just had 20 minutes and I grabbed the napkin and something unconscious and amazing happened that I did. I had no planning and no, I almost feel I had no role in it. Um, it's like you lose agency. But then when I yeah. go, okay, I'm going to write today at 4.15, I write the, I write the worst shit when I intend, to, <laughs> I intend to do it. Which is, I totally agree with what you're saying too. And there's, a, just a huge dollop of irony on that because there's so many, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's a wisdom tradition, but, you know, set your intention before you go about doing anything. And that doesn't necessarily work for either of us, you know, like that opposes a thing most people live or many people live by. Well, and also how does discipline, do you think, factor into this? I mean, are, do you consider yourself to be a disciplined person sometimes uh i guess i mean disciplined in that every single day i do something creative musically uh for example today i had a you know a few minutes off before uh our chat and i have this side project with uh mickey the bass player of maroon five 
which is, I don't want to say it's hip hop, but there's a lot of samples and crazy shit going on. And I don't usually do that. I'm usually just writing, you know, on the piano or on the guitar because it's plastic and malleable and you can, you know, change a chord at the drop of a hat. Um, but today I was accessing some different part of my brain and doing a shit ton of, you know, I, as a reference, like justice uh, or even Daft Punk like edits to uh, a song he and I will probably eventually, uh, you know, sing on. And uh, it's a little bit of an aside, but every day I try to do something that is musical and accessing this part today uh, was kind of like a workout for a muscle I hadn't used for a while. Uh, and that feels good. Working out feels good. Sometimes it's like a cross training. You know, if you like, I, I write poetry, but I also write fiction and I write nonfiction. And so I always feel that sometimes if I'm, if the poetry is not working, I go straight to the nonfiction. And, and if that's not happening, I go straight to the fiction. There's always a place to go to be creative. Yeah. Uh, the creative pivot, maybe yeah. we could call it. Let's call it that. The yeah. Creative pivot. The creative I love it. Pivot. Uh, but I do think. <laughs> It's necessary because I'm sure you'd feel this, you know, and most people who do creative things, you, you get stuck, you know, you, you get either in your own head or like, I don't know where to go from here. And sometimes you're not ready to finish your entire day, especially if that thought has happened at 1030 in the morning. Uh, so yeah, I think it's good to put your attention and put your creativity towards, uh, something else. And for us, at least, you know, in terms of your description, uh, we're just pivoting to different aspects of the same thing. That's you know, right. The written word or word or how language, you know, poetry, prose, you name it, affects oneself and hopefully the people that get to read it and experience it. What I've learned, though, is sometimes if I'm really excited about something, like I got something going and I can't finish it, but, but I, what I, I love where it's going. I love what I have, but I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm empty. I got nothing left. It, it's not going to happen. Um, I've gotten better at going, OK, well, I'm just going to put that down and maybe I'll revisit it tomorrow or in a month or six months. But I can't, you know, it, in the old days, it was an itch that I just couldn't scratch and it drove me insane. Now I'll go, okay, you know what? I like where it is. Let's just, let's just let it sit. How are you with that? When you have an idea and you can't complete it, can you put it aside for a bit? Fuck yeah. Uh, and I'll <laughs> tell you why I'm, I'm already laughing about this, but uh, so we have this new record called Devastator. Phantom Planet has a new record called Devastator coming out uh, in May, May 8th. And I'd say four of the songs were started i started writing them in in between 2006 and 2008 and those had to sit for that amount of time before this year i knew how to finish them which is that's the definitely the longest i've ever sat on anything but yes of course that's i do that too yeah and that's something i could not do when i was younger so i would write these you know if they were half finished, I would I would sort of have to finish them because I would I feel that there was a sort of a allegiance to the moment, and then it would just fuck them up. They they wouldn't be as good. Um, and now I'll go. All right, I'm just gonna I'm gonna let that go for a while, and you know who knows? Maybe I'll maybe I'll revisit that 
uh, hopefully soon, but when I'm ready. Yeah. And well, having the confidence in that, especially if you've yielded results from it, uh, is great. I can also get into a zone of, well, let's leave it for now and then just work on like for totally forget about it, work on like three or four other things. And then just it's, it's gone. And maybe if I'm going through my voice notes, you know, I, I have so many voice notes every day. It's almost impossible to find stuff. And also like when you're writing and you need to label an idea that you're writing, it's not usually the thing that it ends up being. So the titles are all screwy. Mm. So if I don't work on the thing and maybe even write it in our conversation now, I'm realizing, okay, I, I can write notes to myself so I can go back to these things. Uh, but I, I just haven't approached it that way. So if I wait too long, they just go away unless it's like the most memorable chorus I've ever written or I've written that year or whatever. But there's never a shortage of ideas. That's not a problem. No, there's never a shortage of ideas. There's just sometimes a shortage of how to nurture those ideas into a finished product. Right, right. How are the Alex Green walled? Because we're, we're both Alex Green, you have a walled. Um, yeah. How are the vaults? How are the, how deep are your vaults? I mean, do you have just stuff that you haven't even gotten to that you've recorded and have not revisited in years? There's a lot in my voice notes uh i was going through the ones on my phone aren't even they're from the last three phones and before icloud i have on my computer three other full folders of stuff and i was trying to do a general sort of accounting and count of how many things there were and it was in the thousands don't think I'm crazy, but <laughs> I've got of those thousands, I, some of them have become songs. Like there's 11 of those on the new album. Uh, and some of them are just tiny little seedlings. Some of them are awful, but I've got so many that it's daunting to try to go back too far. When you decided to make this record, when you when you weren't recording Phantom Planet songs, did you? How did you regard the band? Did you think of it as like an organism that needed to be fed, or did did that did it cause you anxiety that nothing had been out for so long, or did you just think like this is just the time it's going to be, and this is just the way it is? Yeah. Well, we've been talking about things being right as we get older. Uh, yeah. It just felt like the right time, and there's a couple of different things that came together that also pushed that feeling of it being the right time towards it actually being the right time. Um, Sam, the bass player and I, and Darren, the guitar player, uh, I think for Sam's birthday, we were all just hanging out and someone requested a song at the piano and the three of us hung out there and we played it. It was a fan old Phantom Planet song. And it just felt like writing a bike or like it, welcoming a family member you haven't seen for a while and all the love flooding back in. Not that there wasn't love for each other as individuals, but the love for the thing that we've been for so many years uh, flooding back in. And uh, 
I mean, even like up to how the record got started, we we played a friends and family show in January, and uh, our producer of the last record, Raise the Dead, Tony Berg, was in the audience, and he came up to me after the show, and he's like, I'm going to do a terrible impression of him, but he's like, hey, that was a fucking amazing show. I just got a room at Sound City. Do you want to record there? And I was like, uh, yeah. Sound City, by the way, in LA, it's like, you know, almost historical landmark. Um, yeah. There's a documentary about it that Dave Grohl did. Uh, you know, which is okay. Um, but he just immediately, we played one show and all of a sudden we get some time at one of the coolest, you know, like Fluid Mac recorded rumors there. Like, right. super uh and i was like yeah of course tony i'd love to record there uh and i was like when can we do that he's like as soon as you want which was like jesus christ i haven't been this lucky ever uh (laughs) and then literally like three weeks after that i think we maybe maybe a month after that we started recording devastator by the way that was a great Tony Berg impersonation. I, I appreciate that. I'm probably not spot on, but I have spent enough time with him to get a few maybe mannerisms. Right. <laughs> How are you in terms of your collaborative? Yeah, because like, you know, when you write, you write alone. Um, do you, when you have to, you know, in terms of like when it comes time to collaborate, have you gotten better as a collaborator? Have you always been good at working with, with other people i've been pretty good i've been from from poor when i started to pretty good to staying it pretty good and now i think i'm a lot better and i think it has a lot to do with i mean like so we recorded our first album when i was 16 years old and teenagers are just up their own fucking asses. Sorry, by the way, if any teenagers are listening to this, you'll grow out of it. It's all good. Uh, <laughs> we get it. We understand. We, we've been there. Yeah. But like, I think as, as you start to get your head out of your own ass over time, uh, it makes it more obvious to understanding that we're all, all of humanity are in this together. But also the people, you know, for me in the studio, they're not trying to give ideas to sabotage anything. And the more ideas, the merrier. And I think like, especially now, and this is, you know, 12 years after recording the last one, uh, I'm way more receptive to anybody's input. Um, Also, because I don't feel the teenage fear anymore that the thing that was mine is getting taken away from me because I realized the thing that I'm making wasn't really even specifically mine in the first place. Mm. It's for sharing. Uh, And I think coming to that, slowly coming to that realization uh, has been extremely helpful in the creative process of working with other people, for sure. What did it look like when you say you were poor? Would you just not take a note? Um, I would just argue literally like, well, if it was a, I guess even a producer. I mean, I was like a little shit. I'd be like, no, that's a terrible idea. I'm not doing that. You know? 
<laughs> which is terrible because that hurts feelings. Like that's not a good way to behave. Uh, however, I had to learn somehow and that's how I did it. Behind the glass, I watch the world From cracks the blinds make when they're drawn I watch the world for years this way And that catches us up to this moment today I had a really hard time taking notes when, you know, my writing graduate program, I was kind of an asshole when someone would give me a note. And I realized that I think I might have been that way because I realized they were probably right. And Mm. it was easier for me to go, fuck you, you don't, you don't get how complex I am. <laughs> you, don't get, you don't understand how deep I'm going here. When in fact, in my brain, I'm like, I know they're right. And what I've done is awful. And so the kickback was really out of guilt more than anything else. Cause I knew they were right. Wow. I mean, that's an interesting uh, experience. Cause like for me, I really thought I was right. <laughs> like the whole, the whole time. You're sure of yourself. So sure of myself that it, I put myself in danger. Hold on one second. Siri, no. I said seriously, and it, the phone <laughs> turned on. 
how are you in danger? I, I, I need to know this. Oh, when I say in danger, I just mean like, uh, you know, if, 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 if the, uh, if the animal in the jungle is too self-assured and not looking out for danger, it's going to be prey. And I'm using that as an analogy. There's no time in my life I was ever going to be prey. I hope. Uh, but I just mean like thinking, you know, having having the teenage hubris of, of, of for me anyway, with everything that I do is is spot on perfect, didn't allow for the creative process to do what we've been talking about or like sharing ideas with equally creative and intelligent people um you know i also i'm not sure because hindsight for me is actually 50 50 uh but actually did i do damage to songs of mine in the past by not listening to other people's ideas i have no idea mm -hmm. but i do think about that sometimes only sometimes though what about praise? Like, you know, praise is great, but at one point, do you, like, what do you do with that? Because that can be as corrosive as criticism. I can't handle either very well. I'm working on that. But uh, I think I've always tried to stick with something like, if you believe the good reviews, then you're going to believe the bad reviews. Right. Uh, and, you know, who doesn't like uh, praise, uh, at least to some degree, because it's a maybe an indicator or a marker that you're headed in the right direction or you're doing something good. Right. Right. Uh, but, you know, too much, too much of anything is going to knock you down. Yeah, I'm I'm terrible at taking both too, uh, and I'm not working on it. And I probably <laughs> I probably should. Um, I was talking to this girl that I'm seeing last night on the phone, and she was saying something about I don't remember what she said, but, it, it, but she was giving me a compliment. And in my brain, I thought, what does she want? Because she's obviously leading with this because she wants something else, right? Uh, which is a terrible way to receive a compliment <laughs> you should that is I, I can agree that is a terrible way to receive a compliment <laughs> that is so unhealthy um but i was so suspicious and i don't think i used to be as suspicious you know i'm 49 and i think up until i was you know 44 i wasn't as suspicious now i think like what are you on about what do you want um i'm so mistrustful uh you know, of that, but no, that's not healthy. And I, and I think, I think both need to have a proper place because you, you're going to hear them both from now until the end of your life. Right. Yeah. However long we get. Are you hard on yourself after a performance, after, um, you know, after anything, do you, are you self-critical in a way uh, beyond the editorial voice that we're talking about in terms of like being from a performative standpoint, you, know, you play a show, um, what happens to you after the show? Do you go over it in your brain and go, ah, oh, I shouldn't have done that, or that was cool? Like, what's the post game like for you? Interesting question. I haven't really thought about that too much, but there are times when uh, a show has gone terribly and I've 
in my head pinpointed where I thought that started in the set. Uh, you know, the same as when, you know, like psychologically a, a team starts losing, not because the players aren't the best, but because they got in their heads. Uh, but I think also I, I go through, especially after a show, like the things that were great, I like to bring up to the band, uh, which, you know, I think like positive Positivity in general, but positive reinforcement of the things that you do well work better than reprimanding oneself over the things you did poorly. But it's yeah. good to acknowledge those things because it's good to learn from those mistakes. But I try not to to stick too much in my head about stuff. And you know, sometimes if I'm in a bad mood, like uh, for example, in the studio, if I can't get there, there's a song that we just put out called "Time Moves On," and I could not for the life of me for like months, I could not sing the vocal, like the, the lyrics, the anything. There was too much emotional emotionality tied into those lyrics that I couldn't get through it without like, you know, not full out crying, but the voice wavering, you know, the thing that happens when you're about to cry. Right. Uh, where like, I just couldn't do it. And I was like, this is so fucked. I'm fucked. This song was good and I've just made it shitty. It's not going on the record. Definitely not going on the record. So we have an 11 song record. I, I was literally up until, you know, a couple months before we started mixing or a month before we started mixing. Uh, just like, no, nope, that song just can't make it this time. It's not going to go on the record. And I decided to go home and just do it over and over again until I got all those emo emotions that were like stuck out and then when i came back in to the studio i think i nailed it in like two takes or three takes and it was perfect but i almost like yeah i got in my head so much about it that i almost you know threw it off the record and i think that would have been a mistake because it's one of my favorite songs oh it's, an, it's a fantastic song um what what happens and by the way i'm telling you that i don't want anything i'm just, I'm just telling you it's a compliment that has no I don't need a paper. <laughs> I don't need to borrow twenty bucks. I really love the song. Um, what I'm really curious to know, like you went home and you, what happened? Like you just basically did it so much that it became uh, muscle memory, and you could sort of remove that emotional hitch. What do you think actually happened? I guess you could look at it that way, but for me. Literally, like there were some lyrics I just couldn't get through, and I kind of acknowledged why and just had a cathartic cry about it. Uh, and it would come up less the next time I tried singing it. Uh, meanwhile, by the way, just to set the scene, I was singing. I so I have this very, very tiny log cabin thing in Laurel Canyon extremely isolated laurel canyon los angeles uh extremely isolated and literally now i'm thinking back on this like smiling i was just sitting on my couch literally like in the woods trying my best to have a catharsis enough to be able to sing a song i think is really funny to me in retrospect but at the time uh it wasn't funny at all <laughs> no no it's quite painful 
painful, but like a relieving pain, a, a relief. Like the the lyrics of that song aren't about staying in your grief or in your pain or in loss. It's about this happening to everybody. And as, you know, as time goes on, you will work your way through it. It's, you know, more of a hopeful thing. And I think I wasn't, I was still stuck in like a verse lyric where it did feel like I was stuck emotionally. And I think coming back home and just hammering it out, letting it go, letting it, you know, freeing that thing that was sort of churning still inside of me uh, was not only healthy for me, but it was healthy for the song. It, you know, we finished it, we've recorded it, we put it on the record. It's also, it's a moment where what was private to you has to become public. And that must be a really interesting journey for what is really a piece of very personal information to you that was making you emotional. It's a song that you wrote that is, um, you know, laced with your own experience, which is private. And then now you're performing that publicly without giving anything away about the details, but you're performing it publicly or it's become public property. You know, like people think they, you know, it becomes it becomes something that people um, pass pass on and listen to and relate to. How does that feel? I mean, I'm sure you've done that before, but for this one in particular, which was so emotional for you, what's it like to give that to the public? Let's first call it uh, art, artistic narcissism, <laughs> where. I know I'm going through something that I need to get out for me. Okay. But if it's going to be musical and if it's going to be a song, it's something that I want everybody to be able to share and not in my pain. That's not what these, you know, my songs are not about me talking about like myself just to talk about myself. I'm trying to have a universal experience with the listener um, at my best. Um, so like it, for that song, for example, I sat down at a piano and was feeling pretty shitty and things just started to come out and lyrics and melody and chords. But I knew from my choice of words that I wasn't just talking about myself. And that's sort of what makes it okay but i knew that i was going into once i was writing the song that it would be something that other people would hear and that also becomes part of the songwriting process because i'm no longer complaining about specifics for me i'm i'm using uh larger larger feelings larger ideas that i think everybody feels right so they can relate to it on their whatever they bring to it they bring to it yeah, I think, I mean, whatever a viewer or a listener or an audience bring to your thing, that's what that thing ultimately is about for that person. And I think that's an, a fundamental property to art that lives on. Yeah, that people can project their own experience onto that canvas that you've already painted. Yes, exactly. Tell me a little bit about it sounds like your the way you live is by design, right? You you live in a small 
place where you're sort of isolated, not a lot of neighbors around you, it sounds like? There are neighbors, but not for like a mm. hundred feet, maybe in every direction. Okay. Uh, it could be more. I'm terrible with distance. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's pretty much, it's this tiny cabin that was built in the late 20s. And uh, it's surrounded by a bunch of fruit trees and lavender plants. And there's a giant tree in the front yard that's maybe between 250 and 300 years old, which covers the entire property from the street. It's just this giant tree, oak tree. Um, and it feels like I'm being protected a little bit, uh, from just Hollywood, uh, from city life that I think is really good. That stillness is a great place for where my creativity wants to come out of. What effect has it had on you just in terms of your personality do you find it to be i don't know how long you've lived there but is it have you noticed a change in your aspect um i have been able to sit down at an instrument for longer i think like even though i'm still in los angeles proper you know the city uh i feel like there are less distractions happening or less impulses on on my end um so that i can sit longer and do the thing that actually brings me the most joy in my life not like getting up and running to get a starbucks coffee or whatever because i have right. the impulse to um but i think for me having this isolated cabin is actually allowed or caused me to want to hang out and connect with friends and family more than before. I think just because I get some quiet and some silence and then I get hungry for, you know, the love of friends and family. But I think feeding that silence is essential for, for sort of like, you know, being spiritually sane. I think so too. And, um, you know, I lived in New York for a year and a half, uh, working on two Mark Ronson records and I, I barely slept, I think ever. Like my skin changed a different color. I was tired all the time. I just couldn't handle the stresses of that city very well. Uh, and that's also probably partly me being an LA person through and through. I was born here and I'm pretty laid back. Pretty, pretty, pretty laid back. Uh, where like New York became kind of a source of, I couldn't shut it off. And I think some people really love that about New York. And I could work with it, but it wasn't ideal. So uh, also that was like 10 years ago. But uh, I moved back here and I've lived here ever since. Yeah, I'm... I'm from here as from on my end. I'm from Marin, and I and I so we're both California guys. Um, and I found that. By the way, how do you feel about Northern California? You seem like you like Berkeley. I uh, I love Northern California. I think Berkeley, uh, Marin, that zone is so beautiful to me, and the forestation, and I love the fog. You get a little cold for an LA guy, but. Uh, 
<laughs> it's true. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful place. Uh, I spent some time uh, mixing a score I did for a movie at Skywalker Ranch. Is that Marin? That's Marin. Yeah. Okay. So I that was like one of the best two weeks I've had it. I was working, but it felt like vacation. And I was in this beautiful land of giant, I, are they sequoias? Are they redwoods? What the hell's going on over redwoods. there? There'd be redwoods out there. Okay. Uh, redwoods and just having the most relaxing yet most inspired time ever. Um, but I do, you know, I love... I love nature. I love trees. I love uh, age of of living things, and like old trees really get me. Uh, yeah, I think there's something like living eg- life exuding out of them when they're older, and it feels more solid. And uh, I might be getting a little too woo here, but like the. <laughs> energy of that is comforting to me yeah no i i'm with you on that and i mean i agree with that and i think i think you feed off of it and i, and I think for two california guys you southern me northern um i have found in my writing that california is a kind of consciousness it's almost like a character that's always kind of there um i don't know if you, how you how you regard the state or your or where you're from and how it shows up in your work. It definitely shows up. It definitely shows up in my work. You know, there's like a lot of references to driving. I mean, even like, you know, that, that song California that we have has the lyric driving down the one Oh one. I mean, that is, I don't think you get more Californian than that. (laughs) That's it. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, and I think, I mean, obviously, like, I think art anywhere is 99.9% cultural. So, yeah, how, how could California not have a huge hand in how we write? Yeah, my God, of course. But I haven't given it too much thought of to what degree, but it's got, you know, it's got to be high. Yeah, it's... It's also interesting to me because I, I teach college uh, for a living, and my day job is I'm a professor. And I, it's interesting to hear my students who aren't from here, when I ask them like, "Is this what you thought? Is this what you expected?" I always ask that. I'm always sort of interrogating people about how they, how they perceived California and and whether or not it delivered. And what are, what? How do you? How are the answers? The answer is always no. And then do they go into detail? I'm very curious. Yeah, they do. Um, because they expect, and whether they're from Colorado or India, it's always the same thing. I think they expect what they see on TV. Right. They expect a beach and a palm tree and a girl in a swimsuit, you know, and a, a guy with zinc on his nose. I think they have <laughs> a very sort of um, kind of cliched idea of what it is. But California is so nuanced that, you know, if you're up north in Redding, I mean, Redding has nothing to do with the California that's projected on on television. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, exactly. right. Yeah. So, or like Ukiah or something like that. So, California is a state where I mean, you know, this where you can go skiing or surfing in the same day. 
So it's it's a pretty nuanced state. And um, I think people have this idea that um, of what it is, and it never is that, ever. Um, and then they always go, they always go, no, I mean, I like it. <laughs> They'll always say that. <laughs> I you mean, know. it's good. It's fine. But I was expecting a hunk with zinc on his nose. <laughs> yeah, that guy. I'm not unhappy, but where's the zinc guy? Where's the zinc dude? And I'm like, I yeah, told there would be zinc dudes. <laughs> Man, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for going deep with me. I really appreciate that. Oh, yeah. Um, pleasure to talk to you, too. That was really cool. I hope you guys come up here and uh and play in the in the north I, I don't know when tours will happen again um i don't either but yeah we will definitely be up there i mean that we were planning on going up there before this pandemic happened unfortunately we can't be there in person at different cities to help shepherd it into public awareness but uh it is what it is it is what it is well it's, it's um, for the safety of the human race here yeah that's right that's a, and future phantom planet records fingers crossed yeah i'm more thinking of humanity though first <laughs> humanity first phantom planet second yeah exactly <laughs> alex man thank you so much for your time it was great chatting with you buddy great to talk with you too uh let's do it again sometime in the future if you want We will definitely be having Alex Greenwald back on the show. Uh, Really great conversation. The Phantom Planet record Devastator will be out in mid-June. They did push it back from its initial May release. But uh, the anticipation will be worth it. It is truly one of the year's very best albums. And guess what? You have the ability right this second to pre-order the album. Go to phantompla.net and uh, pick one up for you and someone you love, or someone you're thinking about loving. How about that? And also, pick up some of their merch, cool t-shirts over at the Phantom Planet official site, and you would look adorable in one of those new shirts. Go to my website, alexgreenonline.com, find out what's happening with me. Lots of book news about to happen, so brace yourself for me talking about my new book. Like Phantom Planet's new album, Devastator, my book will also be out in June details forthcoming trust me you can follow me on twitter at embers editor or you can follow me on instagram at embers podcast or just email me editor at stereoembersmagazine.com stereo embers the podcast is available on all podcast platforms go to the one that you use the one you're most comfortable with subscribe give us a rating tell a friend the same friend that you bought the phantom planet album and t-shirt for Think how happy they will be. At the top of the show, we played Phantom Planet's new single, Time Moves On. Let's play the single before that from the album Devastator. This is Party Animal. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening. And I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. When nights get a little crazy days and up a little hazy Just trying to free the pressure, praying for a night.